Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with us tonight. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to accompany your word. And as we open it and, and talk about it and read it, consider it, that you would open up our hearts to receive it. Lord, I pray that you would um, be near to us. Some of us right now are burdened by sin, the things that we've done and thought or said, or the things that we haven't done that we should have done. And we we just feel burdened. We feel weighted down by that. Would you free us? Would you help us to know in Christ all of our sin, everything that, that weighs us down is forgiven? And I pray for those who are just living under mountains of shame to things that they've done that think, think that they define them and think there'll never be a way they can change. I pray that you would bring them freedom. I pray for those of us who are trusting in ourselves for righteousness. We're trying to make life work by being good enough. I pray that you would bring us freedom from that too. We pray that you do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I come from a long line of card players. Yes, the Corbin family tradition. Uh, Every year at family vacation growing up, and then now, like around holidays when I'm with my family, we get together and play all kinds of card games. Um, We play Nerds, which my family called Hell, but Nerds is a little more palatable for the kids. We play a game called May I. We play spades, scotch bridge, all these different things. And and a weird thing about being from a family that has card games that you play is uh, sometimes when you invite other people to play cards with you or maybe they invite you to play with them, when they sit down and start playing a game like, hey, let's play nerds, and you sit down and they start explaining the rules, and you're just like, that's not how you do it. (laughs) That's not nerds. That's you can't play that rule. You know, there's kind of the OCD thing, um, right? So it's the same game, but there are all these other small rule changes that come along. And at the end, you're like, that's not even the same thing. Um, we have a game that we call Jungle Booty. And um, Jungle Booty is a Corbin family favorite. And someone else uh, came over to my family's house and wanted to teach us the rules about Jungle Booty. And... Um, We weren't having any of it. Let me just tell you that. The funny thing about this, though, and the the phenomenon is that these are small rule changes. It's not like they were coming in and bringing a whole different game and wanting to call it the same thing. They were just little tweaks on the, the way that we did it. So it's not that big of a deal, but the small tweaks made it to be a big deal. Um, tonight and next week, leading up to spring break, um, we're actually not looking at any more judges in particular, meaning like specific people. What we're doing, though, is we're kind of getting to the end of judges, and we're going to look. It gives us a zoomed-in picture of what it actually looked like on the ground. We would read these phrases over the last six or seven weeks or whatever that would say, and Israel returned and did the evil that they kept doing, and they would go whore themselves after these other gods, and they, they worshipped everything else other than God. And so it's really interesting because we might think that when we read about this, as we're going to do tonight, that it's just like this crazy stuff that's happening and that people are going off the deep end spiritually. But I think you will be shocked in how close what they're doing looks like to true godly religion. 
They've just tweaked a few things. But, it, but in so doing, they've lost the gospel altogether. It's just a totally different thing. And so what we're really going to see tonight is what religion looks like, kind of the difference between religion and outward signs of kind of godliness, the difference between that and what the Bible holds forth as the good news or the gospel. And make no mistake about it, the changes are small. But I hope the smallness of these changes and how serious the Lord takes us, I hope it shocks us a little bit. Because we're going to see some parallels in our own lives and in the culture around us, even in the Christian culture around us, maybe, um, to what's in here. So let's look at this passage together in um, Judges chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, and we'll just read 13 verses. Okay, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uh, uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, uh, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and combined one of, sorry, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes, and you're living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was, cont- was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And I'm going to skip down to the end of chapter 18. It actually may be worth your time after RUF if you want to go in and read the rest of 17 and 18. Uh, it might be pretty, pretty interesting, but we don't have time tonight. So 1831. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made in as, lo- as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So this is God's word. May he add his blessing to it as we look at it. The three things that I want us to see tonight about how seemingly right things are, kind of the religious nature of what's happening in this passage are this, that, that religious practices don't necessarily make, make them godly practices. Secondly, that religious motives don't equate to godly motives. And thirdly, we are going to see what true godly worship looks like in this passage. So let's look at the first thing right there, religious practices. And this, is, this point is really kind of the biggest part of what I'm about to say. The second two are much shorter. 
What we see, though, in this passage is we look at Micah and what he's doing with his mother and then what he does with the Levite and bringing him in to be a priest is we see lots of really seemingly fine things going on, almost like very religious things happening. But are they good and right things? Uh, One scholar who writes about this passage says that Micah is living proof that it is possible to be set on a course of religious faith and ministry which exudes success in every respect and yet at the same time to rest under the curse of God's judgment. It is possible that everything in your life looks like it's good, looks very religious, very spiritual, and yet God's judgment may be hanging over you because of what you're doing. So good grief, what is Micah doing? What is happening here that is so wrong? Let's look at the first thing. The first sign of kind of vague religion that we see here is we see a lot of moralism. We see moralism. Look at verses 2 and 3. We find out very quickly in this passage that Micah has stolen this pile of of silver, you know, of money from his mother, 1,100 pieces of silver. So he comes to her and, and says, look, I stole it, right? So that's bad. But he comes to her and says, I stole it. That's good. Like we, Micah feels bad about her. He's like repentant in a sense to his mom. He knows right and wrong. He knows what he should do and he does it. So that's good. Um, then we see Micah's mom. Uh, she turns and she actually forgives him. So that's good. That's a good thing to do. That's a very moral thing to do. Um, even it could be a Christian thing to do. So she forgives him and then she wants to bless him. Blessed is Micah by the Lord, right? It, it, it seems good. It seems right. Um, there's this phenomenon that happens in college when um, uh, people, I'll go gender neutral for a second, when people like someone else of the opposite sex or whatever, and you're interested there, and I'm, you know, at some point, inevitably, because I'm paid to ask hard questions to you guys, I'll be like, so is he a Christian or is she a Christian? I'll be like, He's a good guy. Um, like, she's a good girl. Okay? So basically by that meaning, like, he's moral. Like, he's not a terrible person. He's not as bad as some of the other guys are and that kind of stuff. Like, I call it the good guy phenomenon. If they're moral. Micah and his mom are good people. They're doing some good things. Religion is here. The second sign of religion being here is that there's a presence of God talk. We see it very quickly again in verse 3. His, his mom is talking about the Lord. She's talking about Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, the, the God who has rescued them and brought them out of slavery and all this stuff. She's saying his name. She's invoking this God talk. She says, blessed be my son by the Lord. In verse 4, I'm going to dedicate this money to the Lord. This sounds so good. She's not saying, blessed be uh, Blessed be Dagon, or blessed be Baal, or blessed be one of these other pagan gods. She's saying the right stuff. Like, these are the Sunday school answers. Jesus, church, God. Like, she's saying it. This is the good stuff. Uh, Have you all ever seen the YouTube video, Shoot Christians Say? Oh, gosh. If you haven't, you must go see it. It's like Christian jargon in a minute and a half, and it's amazing. So she's doing it right here. So it's like, shoot Jewish women say. Uh, but she's saying God's stuff. It sounds great. But the third thing here, it gets a little bit more dicey right here. 
So Micah's mom has taken uh, this money back from her son. And you just see it right there in verse 5. That she takes this money and, and wants to make, sorry, in verse 3. Now I will make a metal image and a carved image. And you're thinking, wait, 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 wait a minute. You're dedicating this money to the Lord, and now you're about to go take it and make idols with it. Like these little personal statue things that you can worship. Now, for the Jewish mind, which I don't think any of us are, maybe you are, uh, a Jewish mind who really understood the scriptures, when they see that, they've got flashing bulbs going off, like, like carry them back to Mount Sinai. When Moses is up there talking to God and the people are getting impatient, with Moses and with God, and what they start doing is they start making this golden calf. And in making the golden calf, it even says it explicitly in Exodus 32, it says they thought they were worshiping the Lord. They were making this calf so that, like, they could look at it and say, oh, he's with us, instead of just God being a spirit. Like, oh, God is in our our midst. We have this thing that's like God. It's exactly what's happening right here. It's the exact same words that's used. Listen to Deuteronomy 17, uh, sorry, 27, 15. It says this, um, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made of hands of a craftsman, an image. And cursed be the man who sets it up in his secret place. So exactly what's going on in Judges is exactly what what God is forbidding in Deuteronomy that we don't get to just make God in our own image. Basically what he's saying is this. God is saying, you don't get to worship me on your terms. You get to worship me on my terms. I'm God. And I'm going to tell you how it is that I want to be worshipped. Okay? And this was a big deal. This is the second commandment. God said, you don't get to make any image of me. Because inevitably, the image that you make and the way that you try and personify and quantify God, it's going to be lacking some of his other attributes and characters. And so God says, you can't limit me in that way. I won't be your little bobblehead God that you can kind of play with and touch and and be for you what you want to be. I'm God. And you take me for who I am. You take me for me. Or you don't have me at all. But it looks good that they want to worship God. They have these images and this sort of stuff. The fourth thing we see right here is we see Micah's mom holding things back from God, right? She, she signed the pledge card right at the capital campaign, and she's going to give all 1,100 pieces of silver, and she goes up and drops it in the bowl uh, during the song. And, um, but at the end of the day, look right there in the passage. It says, verse 5, that she kept 900 of it back. So she said, yes, God, I, I'm all in. I give you 1,100. But I'm going to just give 200. Uh, I'm going to take 200 and make these idols out of it. She's even half-hearted in in her idolatry. (laughs) Um, So it's not going well, actually. But I actually think at this point we actually start to relate a lot. Because we all have our 900 pieces of silver. We all have the things about us where... We kind of in our minds or maybe out loud or maybe at church or kind of in the heat of the moment, we're like, God, you get all of me. And you'll be, it'll be interesting for you to notice like how many uh, songs, like kind of Christian music songs 
talk about, God, you get every part of me. You're my everything. I love you with my whole heart and all this stuff. And at some point, you start singing these things. You're like, I, I just don't know that's true about me. I don't always give God my whole heart. We hold on to our 900 pieces of silver. So what is that for you? Maybe, maybe if you're not yet a Christian, you're, you're thinking through this stuff and you're, and you're realizing that, that to become a Christian means that I have to give up this thing. That may be uh, your desire to be successful in kind of the power thing. It may be um, your desire to hold on to, to your sexuality and to do with your body what you want to do. It may be that you want to hold on to your time or your money or not be obligated to, to let God have lordship over those areas of your life. So maybe that's kept you on the outside. Maybe that's your 900 pieces of silver. Or maybe you're a Christian and maybe you have others. Maybe sort of some of those same things, but maybe they're different. Maybe you're holding on to your resume and saying, no, God, this is the most important thing. I'll give you Wednesday nights at RUF. I'll give you Sundays. I'll even do a, a, a small group. Um, I'll read my Bible sometimes. Like, I'll give you parts of me, but I'm not going to give you my life. I can't give you my future. I don't want to give you my career. What are you holding on to? What is your 900 pieces of silver that you really don't want to give God, that you don't want to let him have lordship and dominion over where are you tricking yourself and others and making you and them think that you really are religious and that you really are godly? And yet you know in that closet of your heart there are just these massive things that functionally you're telling God you don't want him to have access to that place. I don't want to let you have that part of me. I'm faithful in all these other ways. But come on, God, nobody's perfect. Let me have this. It's religious, but it's not godly. The last thing here, there's just lots of, there's lots of godly stuff in this passage. And I put it in quotes, like, just look down verses 4 and 5. So they make these images, these idols and uh, statues, and they bring them, bring them to Micah's house. And it's like, good grief. Uh, he's got a shrine. He's got an ephod, which we talked about last week. It was like this breastplate thing, which uh, symbolized God's presence. He's got other household gods. He... Crud, he ordained one of his sons who became his personal priest. Like, dude, this is, this is like the car that has all the bumper stickers and the ichthus fish things going every which way and a whole, fam- a whole family of fishes. And like, this, is, this dude is doing it. He's wearing Christian t-shirts, Jewish t-shirts, actually. Um, like, it looks, it looks very spiritual. It's very religious, very good. It's entirely possible for us to fill our lives with so much religious stuff, with so much Christian stuff even, so many good things. These aren't all good things, but with even with good things to kind of make ourselves and others think, look at, look at my stuff, look at my life, look at my car, look at my shirt, look at me. I'm doing it. I look like a, I'm a Christian, right? And what we see in this passage is that he's got so many religious, spiritual things, and yet he doesn't have the Lord. He doesn't have a relationship with God. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. 
I talked to, uh, I got to know an international student a few years ago and got to know him really well. And he was telling me that his parents were uh, building a house back in the country where he was from. And it was exciting and he was excited about it. And he said, hey, I've got some pictures to show you. And he starts flipping through. And, and the whole first floor of this three-story house was essentially a temple to their God. And he's showing it to me. And, I, you know, I've not seen many things like this. We don't do this in America. Um, but, like, it's this huge marble room with statues and colorful things. Like, it's, it's the real deal. They had taken their God and made this personal shrine to him. And I wonder in what ways we do that. In what ways we have our things that we've convinced ourselves that if I can just get God close to me in in these ways, if I can just put this many things and clutter my life with this, then I'll be close to God. That's what Micah was doing. He had so many things to try and fill his life, to make him think, him and others think that he was close to God. But then verse 6 comes and just pounds and it says, look, this is what it looked like when, when people did what was right in their own eyes. He's saying, this is not okay. We, we can't just worship God in the way that we want to. We can't just do these things. Um, so what can't, if we can't worship God in this way, what does it look like um, to worship him? Why can't we do worship God this way? Uh, Tim Keller gives a couple helpful insights here, and I'm going to quote kind of that link from him or read some of these. Uh, he says, that, that what, the thing that's so wrong about having these vague notions of religion and kind of godliness are this, that when we try and worship God on our terms, when we try to take him and remake him in the image that we want him and kind of to be a personal God for us, then what happens is God refuses, we refuse to let God be himself in our lives. That when we try to remake God, we refuse to let him be who he is. So we filter out, either consciously or unconsciously, the things about God that our hearts don't accept. Think about this phrase right here, and we've all heard it if not said it. Right here. Well, I can't believe in a God like that. I like to think of God as being blank. Well... Yeah, I know, like, I know that's what the Bible says about God. That's not, that's not really what I believe. That's not what I think. To me, God is like this. And what Keller's saying is that when that happens, basically what we're doing is we're remaking God into a statue, whether ever visible and physical or not. We're remaking God into a statue as we desire. We kind of shape him and mold him to be what we want him to be. Here's a few ways we do this. We do this when we consciously, intellectually reject part of the scriptural revelation of God. And I touched on that for a second. So when we say this, when we say, well, I know, but as a culture, look, we can no longer accept a God who does this or who, who forbids that. Whenever we say that, it has this kind of aura of, of progress and like, man, this is, we're really moving forward in the world. We're putting away kind of the God of the Old Testament. That was, uh, I don't really know about that. We're into the New Testament and we're into the Jesus thing. God is love, right? There's no more condemnation. Sin's not that big of a deal. It sounds good. It sounds like progress. But what we're, what we're seeing is that we live in a culture that has a very, very high distaste for the God of the Bible. Okay, I understand there are things to be talked about with, so is the God of the Old Testament the same as Jesus? Like, that's a great question. I would love to talk about that with you if that's a question that you have. 
But we can't just intellectually start cutting out huge parts of the Bible and, and piecing together our own Bible as we want. Right? We can't remake God in our image in that way. A second way we do this is we ignore huge parts of the Bible that we just don't like. So not only is it an intellectual cutting out, but we just ignore them. Think about it like this. I may agree with the Bible that giving money away or serving other people or um, that offering forgiveness and showing grace, I may agree with the Bible that that's important. But look, if we move out into the world and never start doing anything, if we never actually start taking that head knowledge and moving it down to our heart and acting on it, then we're basically ignoring it. And we all do this. We all have huge parts of the Bible that we would know and say to be true, but functionally, which have no root in our hearts. So we make God into our own image by just ignoring him. The third thing right here is this. We do this, we make God into our own image when we subjectivize all morality. Here's an illustration. You have two professing Christians who um, they're dating and they're having sex with one another, or maybe they're not actually having sex, maybe they're just having oral sex, and so because that seems better and right. And, and so you ask them and say, well, Tell me, like, why are you doing this? How do you justify this? And they say this. Well, we prayed about it. That sounds good. And we felt a peace about it. And here's what I'm going to suggest. Is that when the things that we feel are in direct contradiction to what Scripture says, it's irrelevant what we feel. If you're doing something that is clearly forbidden in Scripture, whether it be having sex outside of marriage, or whether it be uh, living in self-righteousness or gossiping about others, whatever it is, that the Bible clearly would condemn and say, that's not, that's not right, that doesn't glorify God, and that's not loving your neighbor. And yet you feel a peace about it, and so you're going to do it? Friends, that's making God in your own image. You have entered into religion, but you're no longer in the realm of Christianity. You have God as a God who you may worship and love, but who functionally has no place of rule and authority in your life. So this is what Micah's family had done. They were doing some some very religious things, lots of religious practices, but they didn't truly have a personal relationship with God. And here's what I mean by that. And this is a big deal. Tune back in if you've been tuning out, which is many of you. I'm just kidding. A personal relationship with God is this. A real relationship is a relationship where the other person can contradict and challenge you. That's tr- look, that's true of friendships. That's true of any real relationship. That a real relationship is a relationship where the other party can come in and challenge you about what you think, feel, say, do, anything. And God is wanting that. That is what it means to have a relationship with God, is that he gets access to your life, and he gets to look at that and say... Yeah, um, that's not okay. Or You can't just live that way because if you do, that means this and this and this. That's not loving me and that's not loving others for you to do that. Functionally, though, the kind of the religious way of handling God is that we don't want an actual real relationship with God where he gets to speak into our lives and contradict us. Religion seeks God as an ally. Religion seeks a God who comes alongside and just kind of is your yes man and be like, hey, that's great. I love you no matter what. Just do whatever. I'm God. I'm smiling. I'm sunshines and butterflies. I, it, I, just, I exist to make you feel good about yourself. 
So religion and religiosity seeks God as a yes man, as an ally, but not as a real someone who is relating to you and challenging you and, and, and saying things about your life which you may not like to say. So if in God you found the one who makes demands of you, then you might have found the God of the Bible. But it's not just that. Because the very God who takes a peek at your life and makes demands of you is the very God who gave his own son for those demands which you haven't done. That's when you know you've met the God of the Bible is when you realize that, yeah, his demands are they're absolutely in there. But he also is gracious. And he sent his son Jesus to be the, the sacrifice for all of your failing to keep the demands. That's the God of the Bible. It's the God who demands of you but also loves you. Jesus' name literally means the Lord saves. Do you know that about him? So that's religious practices. That's by and large the huge part of this passage. The second thing I want us to see is religious motives. Look, verse 13 right here. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Uh, my wife went to college in Waco, Texas, the Baker home, um, and, uh, at Baylor University. And she would tell me about this thing on campus called the Bear Trail. And the Bear Trail is essentially just this loop around campus or part of campus where you would go jog and talk to your friends or whatever. But also what that meant is that guys would go out there and act like they were jogging, but just, they would just be doing it to meet girls. And so the guys were putting on this front of, oh, yeah, like, I like to run. And they'd see a cute girl, and they'd just, like, go the other way and start running alongside them. They weren't there to exercise. They were there to meet girls. Micah, right here in this passage, turns the other way on the bear trail. It all looks good, very religious. In verse 13, he's like, all right, finally, now that I have all of this stuff in order, I've got a Levite as a priest. That's better than his son. Levites were the people who were supposed to be priests. He's got his own personal pastor, and he's saying, now I'm there. I finally got it all figured out. Now I'll be close to the Lord. No. What does he say? Now the Lord will prosper me. What Micah does, he shows us his hand. He shows us all of his cards and says, I'm in this for what God can get me. Friends, religion goes to God to get something. The gospel goes to God to get God. And the difference in that is the difference in everything. If you are thinking about the way you approach God so that he can make your life work or so that he can prosper you, so that he can get you a good husband or a good wife, if you're going to God so that he can make your future work out as you want him to, if you're going to God for anything other than the real living relationship with the Lord who gave his life for you, then you're going to God for religious reasons. You've made him into your own image. The gospel says we go to God to get God. So really, think about this for just a second. What are you functionally looking to God for? What are you hoping that being a Christian is going to get you? What are you hoping that coming to RUF and kind of trying to put your life together in this way, what are you looking for it to deliver for you? Are you going to God for something or are you going to God for God? 
the last thing we see in this passage is, man, that, that's like a lot of bad news in there. That's a lot of like heavy stuff. So what, what would it look like to worship God truly, rightly, in a very godly sense? Well, we see at the, verse, the end of, of chapter 18. So I put that verse in there um, because it says, So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the, as the house of God was at Shiloh. What, what does that even mean? Well, it meant that in the midst of all of Israel's idolatry and they're whoring themselves out to these other gods and they're doing things that weren't all that bad, that God was still there. The tabernacle was still at Shiloh like it had always been. If these people wanted to meet with God, they could go there and meet with him on his terms in the way that he said to. Like, God has not changed. He is still there. He's still God. And so, friends... True worship means you go to God for God. You go to him on his terms at the place where he said, I will meet you there. Come and worship me. I'll meet you there. I'm here. He's not a moving target. He's not an elusive quarterback who's trying to get away from you and be like, ooh, ooh, you got to figure me out. Ooh, He's not. He says, if you repent of your sin and you come to me, you worship me. It's not, it is not rocket science. Fast forward to John chapter 4. John's having a conversation with a prostitute. And he's looking at this woman. He's telling her everything about her life. And he looks at her and says this in chapter 4, verse 23. But the hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship me, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus looked at her and said to her, I who speak to you am he. What was he saying? He said, look, if you want to worship God, you come to me. I am the way that you worship God in spirit and truth. Think about this. God wants your heart. That's what it means to worship him in spirit. He doesn't just want your actions. He doesn't want you just to go to church. He doesn't want you just to come to our He wants the motivations of your heart. He wants the core part of you. He wants you to worship him in spirit. True worship is always a spiritual endeavor, not just an, art, an outward action. But he also wants you to worship him in truth. God is asking you to worship him as he is, not as you want him to be. We worship him as he's revealed himself to be in the Bible. And so what that means is we worship Jesus. Because Jesus is the truest picture of who God is. He's the fullest revelation of who God is. And that's why Jesus says, look, you can't come to the Father except through me. I am your access to God. I am your access to that relationship. So do you know the God who loves you so deep and so, so relentlessly and so fully that he gave himself for you? Or are you going to God to get God? Let me close this illustration. Two minutes. Sinclair Ferguson's a, a pastor from Scotland. I actually think he's moved back to Scotland to finish out his life. And he's listening. Um, he's given a sermon he's about listening to a BBC broadcast about heaven. And in this broadcast, the interviewers are asking people, uh, you know, why would you want to go to heaven? Tell me what heaven's like. And everyone's answers are kind of the standard thing, like, look, there'll be no more suffering, no more tears. It'll be a happy place. Maybe I'll be reunited with some of my, um, my ancestors or family members, whatever. Um, but to a T, nobody said 
I want to go to heaven because that's where God is. Nobody said it. And Ferguson says this, If you can imagine a heaven without God, then it will be hell for you. If you can imagine a heaven where everything is good and looks right and feels right and all this stuff is there, and yet God is not there with you, then it will be a living forever eternal hell. Friends, some of you are doing this stuff because you're trying to create this life of religion and and seeming godliness, but there's no Jesus in it. There's no heart connection to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that that makes no sense. You can't have all this stuff. You you can't try to play dress up with me. But you can have me. I came and gave myself for you. I'm not, you don't even have to work for it. Just receive the forgiveness that I've offered to you at the cross and receive the life that I've offered to you in my resurrection. Receive the future promised inheritance that I've secured for you in my ascension. And receive the Holy Spirit and let Him fight in you against God's and our enemies. Let the Holy Spirit work in you. Jesus is saying, I've done it all for you, but you have to come to me. True worshipers worship God in spirit and truth. Jesus is how we worship God in spirit and truth. Let's pray together.